Hey, it's Ben Walker Story. You remember from the Cheap Chills show? Well, geez, our lives have fluxed and ebbed and changed, I guess, like everybody's. Our interests have come full circle in a lot of ways. But one thing that's become apparent is Amanda's interests and, and schedule has gone more and more towards her vintage clothing business. So rather than dragging her into a podcast about monsters and stuff, I thought it would be interesting to sit down with her and talk about, well, one, our interest in living like the Adams Family, but also to talk about her vintage clothing business, which is thriving and growing. And it's something that I thought a lot of people would be interested in hearing about. So this is sort of a one-off recording, an interview with Amanda Walker Story of Irreverent Finery. And you, by the way, can find her on at Irreverent Finery on Instagram. But yeah, this is us just delving into the subject of her buying and reselling vintage clothing as a business. If you're interested in that sort of thing, you would be behooved to listen to in the meantime, also check out the animated versions of the Cheap Chills show, which I've been producing and putting up on Instagram at Cheap Chills Fan Club and on YouTube. Just, uh, well, I guess you'd search for Ben Walker Story. So here it is, my interview with my wife and partner in crime, Amanda Walker Story of Irreverent Finery. There's... A problem with our intro. How to spend time with your family at home instead of leaving for a conventional job. That's everybody now. Well, for now, but I mean, maybe in like 2046, people might go back to an office. How to embrace the darker parts of life and how to be okay with being the weirdos in your town. How to live full Adams. My name is Ben Walker Story. And I'm Amanda Walker story. You know, we've never really done like an exploration of us and specifically you. And I was thinking that we could interview you as the guest instead of as the co-host. <laughs> okay. <laughs> wow. I'm so shocked and surprised. Because you are uh, an, an expert on living full atoms. You... Um, I don't know if I should pretend that I, I can't pretend that I don't know your life story. So I'll just pretend that I've researched a bunch and I'm a great interviewer. <laughs> you had a very sort of conventional, we could call it a retail job that you had for most of your adult life. Yes. Yeah. And we could talk about how you got into that. And then you've pivoted in the last couple of years into something that is really more of an and Adam's lifestyle, which again, if you're new to this show, and I guess everybody is, because this is really kind of the first official episode after our little pilot. Again, we're seeking out this lifestyle of like not needing a boss and hopefully someday not even really needing a gig in a way of just like letting money come to you from things that you've already put out into the universe. Yeah, that or just like moving into a Victorian that already has a pre-filled vault of doubloons. Yeah, that, that would be ideal. <laughs> that would be ideal. But um, yes, so I did work a, I worked retail most of my life because it's easy to do. Um, I mean, it's not easy to do. Retail is very challenging, but easy to get into, easy to get into. Um, 
and I guess my first retail job was working here in town at a store called Vanity Fair. It was a small boutique and the woman who owned it had a daughter who was my age and her daughter was like a very punky kind of skater girl, not like me. And so when I applied for the job, she sort of took me under her wing and was the first person that really um, fostered my interest in clothing and vintage as a skill that you could have. Yeah, let's back up for a second because I haven't actually introduced you as being okay. a vintage clothing dealer now. You have basically a second full-time job Yes. That is dealing, uh, buying and reselling vintage clothing. Yes. Okay. So yes, that's how it, um, I've always loved vintage clothing. I've always been into fashion since forever and uh, started buying vintage clothing as soon as I could. As soon as I started making my own money, I, I was buying vintage clothing and then got that job and was, um, sort of uh, allowed the exploration of, of that interest and um, did that for my whole high school career, worked there and really enjoyed it. And then went on to go to fashion school. And at that time I had wanted to be a shoe designer. I loved shoes and thought that that was my future. But it turns out that like in that time, what I was most passionate about learning about in school wasn't really about shoes. It was about fashion history. I loved, I love history in general and then learning about fashion history and just like where it comes from and just the root of it all was really something I became passionate about. And I decided I didn't want to be a shoe designer, but I had to pay the bills. So I started doing makeup artistry and I did that career for 15 years. Yeah all the while wearing vintage clothing and loving fashion, of course, but, um, yeah, just like a huge, I remember you just having like a huge collection with a, with a, an array, yes, right? It was an like, array. you know, certainly you've always loved vintage clothing for as long as I've known you and you, you like having things that have a story. I remember you mm -hmm. talking about, but I also know that you would have like a lot of eclectic modern wear mixed in and you'd really go for a different look every day. Yeah. I just always have been very expressive with my clothing and, um, have never liked to look like a mannequin in a store. You know, I've always been a very expressive dresser and, and emoted myself through the clothing that I would wear. And I'm also have always been an avid thrifter. So I would often in San Francisco walk down to local thrift stores and buy things right. and find really fine treasure. And anytime I would wear these things, people would always be like, where are you getting this stuff? And I'd be like, I thrifted it for like $5. And, um, people would always be surprised by that. I mean, that's always been something I have had a talent at since forever is finding things for next to nothing yeah. and wearing it in a way that made it seem expensive and luxurious. So how did, how did you come to transition from going from being a makeup artist? Cause you were in it to win it as a makeup artist. You were very ambitious with that and you wanted to be the best and you we're, you know, topping everybody's sales goals all the time. Is that, am I saying the right words? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, every job that I've ever done, I've wanted to excel at and always have been very ambitious with my jobs and 
if I've taken on a, a job or a career, I wanted to be the best at it. Yeah. But I think the turning point for makeup artistry came when you and I had a conversation where we were like, yeah, you know, we're married now and we want to have a family. We want to have a baby. And when I was a makeup artist, I worked every holiday, every weekend, unpredictable hours, long hours. And I knew that while a lot of other people do that job and have a family, which is great for them. That wasn't a good fit for me. That wasn't how I wanted my, my journey as a mom to be. Mm -hmm. And so that was when I really started looking seriously into pivoting and doing something that would allow me to really be a present parent. And so I decided at that point I wanted to work from home and that had always been a goal. I mean, we have talked about being full Adams for since we've been together. And that was one of the main elements of being full Adams, working full Adams is you work from home and you don't have your own, you don't have a boss. You don't have someone like setting your hours. You're there and you, you, you're close to home. And so I started to try to find ways to make that dream a reality. And I did find a job that I could work remote and I still do work that job. It's a salary job. It pays for our health insurance, which is great. It's not the job that I am passionate about, mm-hmm. but, um, since taking on that job, I decided I still wanted to do something I was passionate about and something that I loved. And I guess it kind of started when I started selling off my wardrobe yeah. from before jet was born. So all of the small sizes of clothing, as hard as it was for me to like decide, like make that decision that I'm not going to be that pre baby size that I was, um, I decided that I have to sell these clothes. And so I started doing that. I started slowly selling this like 26 inch size wardrobe that I had 26 inch waist and had success with that. That was on an app. I've done, I did that between Facebook and Depop. Yeah. Depop. Depop, which was kind of my first, I sold makeup on there and clothing and Facebook as well. I I sold things on Facebook and the Facebook sales, um, you know, you, you put something up and you list it and then someone buys it and it's sort of addicting where you're like, Oh, Hey, that's like 60 bucks. I didn't have before or whatever, you know? And just to be clear, this isn't on the marketplace. No, not on the marketplace. How does it work on with you the way you sell on Facebook? The way I sell on Facebook is in private groups. So they are membership only groups of people who um, join these groups specifically to buy and sell vintage clothing. So you just search and then you ask to join. Yes. People who want to get in on something like that. Yes. And there are a lot of them and there are Facebook selling groups for all types of things, um, all types of eras, all types of condition of things. There's like, I mean, there's literally hundred thousands of groups, but the particular groups that I'm a member of are probably the higher end. They're more, um, moderated than others. There are more rules, but Mm -hmm. that also makes them a better group for selling because there are very specific ways that people go about it. It's not like the wild, wild west of selling. And, uh, 
And it means that when somebody buys something, they're not showing up at our front door. That right. You've never really done that. No, no, I don't do that. Um, everything is shipped through, you know, postal service. But that every time I, you know, bought things here and there, or thrifted things and would resell it, it sort of built my confidence every time. And I was like, wow, people are really, really uh, enjoying the things I'm offering. And when you say like they're enjoying the things I'm offering, it's saying like they're enjoying a piece of me because I only buy things I like. You know, I only buy thrift things that I would actually wear or things that appeal to me. So in a way, a person, when they buy from you, you're like, oh yeah, they're like, they're into my vibe. Yeah. So that feels really good. And, uh, it got to a point with Facebook sales where they were really good and it was growing and growing. And I remember, I guess it was last year Googling, like how much money do you have to make to be like a real business? Like I, I Googled that, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> those exact words. And, um, I guess like the going standard is if you make like $20,000 doing something like that's a business, it's not a hobby anymore. It's as a business profit. as in profit. Yeah. And so I started, um, at that point really like calculating my sales and how much I had made. And I was like, Oh wow. Like I'm, I'm a real business now. And so when was this, this was in like April, 2019. Yeah. So it's only been like a year and it, a year. Well, over a year, but yeah, it's 29, it's 2020. It's the end of 2020. So April, 2019 till now a year and a half. Okay. I mean, I've been buying and selling vintage for a really long time, but where, you know, the point where I decided this is going to be like a legit business that I'm going to really dive into was April of 2019. And I bought a reseller's license and I, uh, decided to start going to estate sales. And I really just like, really wanted to make a go of it. Yeah. I feel like your sort of commitment to the amount of time that you're going to spend on it and, and just deciding that you're going all in and it's not just, I feel like when we were living with my mom a couple of years ago, it was, it was still kind of spotty and just whenever you felt like it a little mm -hmm. bit more. And when you jumped in all the way, there was like sort of a shift in the attitude, like with your budgeting too, you know, like yes. what you're willing to pay for, things. And I remember kind of having like talks about, you know, as long as there is a profit, you're, you're doing good. Cause sometimes you would kind of be like, Oh, I don't know about spending this much on this thing, even though I would be making three times as much when I sell it. Yeah. I mean, I guess if I had to pinpoint a specific, uh, day that I decided to get serious, it would be the estate sale that we did all together, probably the estate sale we did all together as a family. The one that I saw online, saw photos and was like, okay, this is like a time capsule house. And, uh, we decided to all go together. And that was the one where jet got car sick Okay. and we were late and I missed out on the 1940s painted blouse that I went for because those sell for a lot. That was like what I saw in the photo of this estate sale. And I was like, okay, I need to go to this estate sale. Yeah. And that was cause we had to strip our son in, in the back of the car. And now he's walking around in a estate sale, wearing like a paper bag, <laughs> a diaper, <laughs> a diaper and shoes. Yeah. But, um, that day, 
that day I had a heap of clothing, like a pile of clothing. And, you know, it was more than I'd ever spent on thrifting. You know, you go thrifting, you got $5, $6 at the most at a thrift store, maybe $12 for a garment. But some of these dresses were 20 or $25 for me was like a huge investment. That was a huge investment. And, um, I remember her giving me the total and it was like $500 and I, my upper lip was sweating. <laughs> I was like moist in the underarm region. And I was just like, I'm, I guess I'm doing this. It was the biggest investment I've made. I mean, I'm not a big spender on things in right. general. I don't like buy luxury things. I'm not a person going to shell out money for a handbag. So it was like a big investment for me and something that I was fairly new at. So I was scared, of course, but I went for it and I don't remember how many things I got, but it was like a trunk load that day. We went to a second estate sale and I bought more that day and it was just like, okay, I hope this is, I hope this is going to be worth it. And I mean, looking back now, I made back my money on two dresses and I yeah. had like 30 dresses. Yeah. So you can see like the profit margin and there. They didn't, they didn't sit around. They all, Oh, they all sold immediately. Yeah. What percentage of the stuff that you buy, um, doesn't make it back out as sold? Um, I mean, is it, was that a weird way of wording that <laughs> you mean like what percentage of things, what, what stuff doesn't sell? How much doesn't sell? I think that I don't give up on something as being like, this is never going to sell. I mean, the, the oldest thing in my inventory currently is a year old. And there are people who sell vintage that have had things in their inventory for 10 years. Right. So there's, there's your knowledge base and taste and, and everything that goes into, you know, buying sort of carefully and you're not just grabbing whatever looks old or just grabbing things willy nilly at the, at the thrift store. It's not like you can just, you know, make it up as you go along and it's just automatically going to sell. So how does that, does that just come from, tell me where that comes from? I mean, I think that first and foremost, like, let's just talk about like a thrift store in general. You go to a thrift store and you look at everything. And, um, the first thing I shop with is my hands. I touch every garment that I walk past and I have even the people, <laughs> every, even the ones on people. Damn it. Yes. I blew that joke. <laughs> even the people. Um, I just kind of touch everything because for me, the fastest way to find something vintage is the, the fabric. And that just comes from years of fa like touching fabric, I guess. You can just tell the difference between something that is new and something that is not new. And um, the quality, you can touch the quality. And so, you know, I kind of touch everything. And then if I touch something that looks, that feels substantial, then I look at what I'm doing, you know, and kind of scan the racks and I look for colors because there are colors that are, and patterns that are very specific to specific eras. And I look at, you know, details like zippers and beading. And then if I'm really kind of unsure about something, I'll pull it off the rack and look at the label and maybe flip it inside out and check out the construction. So it's definitely something that you learn over the years, but it's also something that 
takes a lot of skill and attention to detail. Like you can't just like go to a thrift store and be like, that looks old, that looks old, that looks old. And like expect to be a, an expert. What if somebody didn't have the knowledge base, but they felt like they had a very specific sort of taste and they just were like kind of curating a collection I wonder how would, would that, do you think that would work? Or they might end up buying something that's only like three years old and it turns out it's from Costco or something, but yeah, you know. I mean, it happens and there are times that I do buy contemporary pieces and I, I list them, but the contemporary things that I share are still special, you know? Like mm -hmm. there's still something that is extra special about it. And, you know, if it looks cool and if it's like a cool style, vintage isn't just like, it doesn't have to be 50 years old to be great. It has to be great to be great. So, so you get kind of excited about it and rush and it is, it isn't just, you know, oh, this looks like something that would sell. This looks. No, bad. no. And there are certainly people in this industry that I would I will call era snobs or like, Oh, I only sell 1940s. I only sell this, which I feel like is very limiting as a person. I mean, maybe that person only wears that style of clothing. Maybe they only appreciate that era. That's just not me. I've always had a very eclectic, broad aesthetic. And so I appreciate things from the Edwardian times to the twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, all the way up to, you know, the two thousands and beyond. Like I can see things that appeal to me in every decade. And that's what I go for. And I think that that's sort of what has given me a little bit more success than maybe some other sellers. Right. You go with what excites you. And I, I've heard you talk about things that, you know, for a fact, do well, but you, you don't deal in it because it isn't like your aesthetic and it doesn't excite you like nineties era stuff. Yeah. Certain things like there are certain specific garments or certain or like streetwear. Yeah. You know, like yeah. Some kind of Tommy Hilfiger or Kooji. a t-shirt a with Tweety wearing backwards pants. Yeah, totally. Like people do buy those and, and deal in those and sell those kinds of things and, and make money off of it. But for me to be, ex for me to like dedicate the time that it takes to curate something, launder it, measure it, <laughs> list it, photograph, you know, photograph it, all the things that you have to do and then answer questions about it. Like I have to be kind of excited about it. Yeah. Otherwise I'm just like, <laughs> I don't want to give you all the details about a vintage Tweety Bird t-shirt that yeah. I'm not interested I, in. You don't have anything against it. It reminds no. me of like when people have like requests for for stuff for me to, or they have suggestions for things that I should do. Oh, you're you're good at drawing. You should draw. You should draw Saddam Hussein. And I was just like, sorry, I don't do requests, and it's not like I can't or that like want to. It's just that I literally don't want to. I have stuff that I want to do that is in in ahead in line. Yeah, and I mean, isn't that one of the things that like makes actually being and working and living full atoms, like it's a plus. You do the things you like to do. Yeah. You dedicate your time and energy in to the things that make you happy and excited about life and excited about your job, things that you're passionate about. That's like a plus. You don't just do whatever. And it is a weird sort of form of communication almost where it is that passion that comes through and then that is what gets people Jack, can you stop making noises, please? 
it is that passion that, that comes through and then people see that and they're like interested in what you do and they get it where if you're yeah. just like i'm gonna do whatever i think works then it doesn't translate i've had the same kind of thing with i think know. we were talking about like selling things you like or doing things you like versus just doing it all this yeah. diluted version where you're like hey i'm just and there are like tiers of sellers that do that there are like multiple tiers just like with artistry or anything else there's like varying levels of doing this type of work and who decides you you decide what level you want to be at do you want to be the person who goes to the goodwill bins and digs through the bins you know do you want to be the person who just thrifts or goes to yard sales do you want to go to estate sales do you want to go to high-end auctions there's multiple layers yeah. and the same question could kind of apply to not just the taste but like price range do you mm -hmm. do you keep to a range or i mean when you're saying a price do you mean what i'm charging or what i'm spending to buy things well let's start with with what you're buying so there's no there's obviously no low point on what i will spend if it's something that i think is great and will be a, a valuable contribution to my shop or my Instagram page. It looks great. I've, I've purchased, I found a 1930s silk velvet dress folded up in the bottom of a, a grandma's sewing box and I spent a dollar on it and I turned around and sold it for $98. So that's sort of a dollar is a low end, you know, payment with a, depending on how much you sell it for, you get a, a high turnaround on that. The most I've ever spent on something to sell is um, a 1970s velvet and Indian cotton gown with kimono sleeves. I spent $110 on it. But I think initially, like, I had this pipe dream that it would be for me. So I was like, oh, I, you know, if I think it's for me, I will spend more on it. Mm -hmm. So $110 on this like amazing gown for me. I'm like, yes. Well, I got it and it was very tiny. So I decided to resell it and I ended up reselling it for $350. So that's still a good turnaround mm -hmm. on that. But I, I tend to like not want to spend more than $30 on something to, to sell. And at the same time, you don't seem to do like volume, volume, volume as far as like, I'm just going to grab a bunch of stuff and sell it for $15, $20 each and just try to put it all up on eBay at the same time. You know what I mean? No, I mean, I think there are people who, who use that business model and that's great for them. I just try to really choose things that are more special in general, things that are more rare, interesting. And there are certainly pieces like we did that... Um, that sale at the beginning of the pandemic this year where I wrangled you into going with me to uh, buy those 175 pieces. Out of a truck. Out of a truck. Yeah, it was 175 pieces for $175, which is insane. Yeah, you didn't even need to bother to look at it. I didn't really. look at anything. They all have, It was all like dry cleaned stuff. I don't really know where it came from, but... Um, That's interesting though, because if it's all in dry clean bags, then it means it's not just people's t-shirts that they got for doing a walkathon or anything no it was all like uh, all those pieces are just like legit dresses pants blouses there was nothing in there that was garbage but i spent a dollar per piece and it was sort of a blind buy 
and that they showed me like some pieces that were in there and I made the decision to just go for it. I mean, at that price point, if you sell it for $10, you're still making a great profit. And so um, those things were a dollar a piece and I have, they're not all exciting pieces. I wouldn't call them my sexy things. They're like a 1970s blouse, you yeah. know? And if I sell it for $30, it that's, that's a fair market value. I spent a dollar on it. So that was like more of an investment to, enrich my shop with lower priced items the rice yeah the rice pilaf it was the (laughs) rice of it's the rice of the shop yes that's a good way to put it (laughs) so could we talk a little bit about sort of pricing and seems like you have your own thoughts and feelings on the ethics and other people might have complaints about about how things are purchased and and priced and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think with any job that I've ever done, people have questioned whether I should actually make money doing it. And I think that's the same with art, you know, people are always like, but if you love doing it, why should you make money on it? Just illustrate my children's book. Yeah. Like you love it, right? You love doing it. So you should just like get do it for free. That's Mm. what people always think. Um, So there are people who think that, uh, resellers are sort of gentrifying thrifting, that thrifting has always been for people who, I mean, and that's a, this is a misconception. There are people who think that thrifting is for people who don't have a lot of money and they go to thrift stores and that's why they buy their clothes there. They don't have the money to buy new clothes. And I just don't think that that's specifically true. It seems like a very antiquated idea. Like that's why they were set up in the first place. But for the most part pricing of clothing that you could get brand new at Target or Kmart or Walmart or or Forever 21 is basically the same pricing that you would get at a thrift store. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. Now, fast fashion is probably cheaper than a thrift store. And you're right. It is sort of an antiquated thought process that a person would have to go to a charity shop to get a lower priced Ooh, thing. Could you turn it around on people? Because in a way it feels a little higher and mightier than thou. Like I don't go to thrift stores because they're dirty, but I know that dirty people go to them. You know what I mean? And I'm going to protect those people by complaining to you. It feels a little outsider uh, above it all of an attitude to have about it. But anyway, I'm just kind yeah. of making stuff up about people I haven't talked to. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's that's that uh, group of people who believe that resellers should not be, you know, in, in their words, pilfering these lower priced charity shops and then reselling these garments for a profit. There are people who believe that and that somehow that's taking away from someone else. And I don't, right. I don't like believe that at all. Like out on something. Yeah. Like they're going to be naked or, or they wanted that 1960s cape and you, they don't have that opportunity to wear that cape because you took it. Right. And I think that that's like the real disconnect with this misconception is that I'm, I'm out there looking for very specific things that are available at these places. I don't think that the 
impoverished person who needs an outfit for a job interview is going to be buying this 1960s cape that I'm buying. You know what I mean? Like it, there's a disconnect there with what these people are actually needing and going to these shops for maybe because they don't have money versus what I'm buying. And you're all literally, whether it's an impoverished person or a threat or a reseller, you're all saving this stuff from the landfills. Yeah. We're all saving this stuff from the landfills. Also like, saving these things for, you know, posterity. These are clo vintage clothing is history. These are things that like, aren't going to ever be made again. It's not a renewable resource. You're saving it from the upcycler who's going to like splash blood on a prom dress or uh, paint some kind of, I don't know what, on the back of a jacket. Yes. And I am admittedly a, uh, purist when it comes to vintage. I do not agree with, uh, upcycling or I don't agree with upcycling anything or changing it irreversibly unless it's absolutely unsalvageable in the condition that it's in. Meaning right. this thing cannot be saved. It's damaged beyond repair or salvage. So now at this point, I'm going to cut the bottom of it and make it a top or whatever, mm -hmm. or it has so many stains that I'm going to paint over it. Like that's the only time that I feel that it's appropriate to, uh, upcycle a vintage garment. And that's probably an unpopular decision with a lot of people or an unpopular opinion rather, because there are people who are like, what? Like I'm making it better. And it's I'm like, saving it from the landfill. yeah, they, they also think that, but I think of it more from a, a conservationist point of view where I'm like, I want to save this thing as intact as possible as an, like an, you know, a, a piece of history. And it's a little short sighted. I know you've, you've said that when you pick up like a, a coat that's from the fifties, you will wear it and then when you die and there's your estate sale, hopefully another vintage lover will take up the torch and, and wear it as well. Where if somebody decides to paint a pyramid with an eyeball on the back of it, that's it. It's not, it's not that code anymore. Yeah. I mean, I think that I very much live by the, the mantra that we are all really just renting our possessions while we're here. Nothing really belongs to us. So making a decision that your aesthetic and your, uh, your upcycling of this garment is going to like elevate it more than its original design. It's a very bold statement to make, you know, like I know better than the original person who made this yeah. and it's going to be more desirable from now when I paint on it till forever. That's like very, the, the hubris, you know, where I get it is when we would go to these art events where people are sketching live and stuff and people would bring old photos that they had found at antique stores or thrift stores or whatever. And they would paint in their like creature or whatever into these photos. I, I, I don't know. I always felt like oh, that could be the only per the only picture of that person that exists and you're, you're kind of just slowly wiping out some history by painting your creatures into these photos. Yeah, it's that. And it's also just like a literal moment in time that has been frozen that you're deciding to alter, which maybe, you know, we're kind of romantics in yeah. that way. We're both very sentimental and romantic. And I also just think like, it's not 
like what you're doing isn't good enough to like mm-hmm. actually rationalize yeah. defacing this thing, you know, like you're not, it, it would really have to be something sensational for me to be like, wow, you really like leveled up this thing. I guess a good example would be like Wayne White, doesn't he? Right. Aren't those thrift store paintings that he's putting his words into? Yes. I think he's an example of a person who, um, elevates this idea of taking thrifted things and like adding to it. He's probably one of the only ones that I've seen where I'm like, okay. You were like, that guy knows how to paint. That guy, and he has a point of view and he has like, um, there's a lot more to it than just like, I'm going to decide to add like a Star Wars figure to this painting of a seascape or whatever. Like, I just don't know that I feel very strongly about that type of of work and the same goes for someone who sees a gunny sacks dress and goes i'm gonna tie-dye it for some reason and it's like you can never take that back it's irreversible for this thing that you're you're making a decision you're just hoping that from now until forever that someone's gonna want this yeah and i just don't know that they will so if somebody wanted to get into this and and they wanted you know, maybe to start with their own stuff or they found some things at a thrift store, what would be a good way to start selling? I mean, I think before you ever even consider selling anything, you need to read a lot. You need to read books. You need to look at photos. You need to like do your research because the last thing you want to do is just like decide that, Hey, I think this is like a 1960s thing and I'm going to sell it and not really have like the, the so you're, you're talking about, um, the fact that you need to list these things. You need to write out the details about the clothing. That's the hard part. Like if you just, if you just have a jacket that you think looks cool, you could put it on like Depop or whatever or Depop and just be like, this is a cool looking jacket. I don't really know anything about it. And let the pricing or the bidding do its own work from there. Like keep the pricing low and just be like, I don't know what this is. You figure it out. It's 15 bucks or there, or there's no reserve on eBay and it's starting at $3. And if it is some kind of wild find, then the bidding will go up and it'll work out. But if, if it is just some random, jacket then it it won't and you need to be okay with that but if you want to like have this be a business where you're listing stuff you're saying you need to know the information before you can even get on and try to list stuff yeah i mean at the minimum you need to google the label on your garment you need to have some sort of sense of when it was made like you can't you can surely just list something on ebay and be like hey i have a cool jacket i know nothing about buy it from me and you know good luck with doing that but um yeah you might have a treasure you probably won't you know and people might buy it or they might not but if you want to be serious about it and be an ethical seller and good at what you're doing, you do need to like learn and read and Google and, um, you know, maybe talk with other people who do this kind of work and, and try to learn from someone if you can, or, um, I mean, the the information is out there. Yeah. I think what would, would throw, what I feel like, what am I trying to say? 
One thing that could throw people, and you've talked to people like in our own family who have been thrown by this because they are outsiders, is the fact that fashion has cycles and things that we're in in one period, like, I don't know, let's say uh, big puffy shoulders. Somebody might think, oh, yeah, 80s. But that was inspired by the 1940s. Yeah. And so there's these cycles or even there's stuff that is purposefully made recently to look old, like, say, vintage T-shirts. What would somebody do to to work around figuring out whether like a T-shirt is actually from when Pee Wee's Playhouse was on versus like some reproduction that was made for Amazon? And I, I mean, it's a good question because I think this is where the misconception lies that this is easy work. A lot of people think, oh, you just go buy stuff that looks old and you sell it. But it is very hard. And there have definitely been garments that have tripped me up that I thought for sure were older that weren't or thought they were a certain era and they weren't or um, were newer and I thought they were older or were older that I thought were newer. Like, And I'm a person that I think is pretty well versed on this stuff. I have a lot of, of knowledge and research that I've done over the years. And um, I mean, I think one of the first things specifically with t-shirts is where was it made? You know, if it was made in China. How would you find that out? You're holding a t-shirt at the thrift store. How do you know where it was you made? You look at the label. I think that's the first thing you would probably do is start looking at labels. Look so at whether it was from the 60s or 80s or now, there's generally going to be a label in there that says what country it well, was printed in. Yeah, yeah. You're going to see uh, stuff like, you know, made in Pakistan, the made in China's. Those are going to be all like newer things. A lot of stuff from the 1980s is just going to be made in the USA because that was a huge deal to have your clothes made in the USA. And then, you know, you get into older things where it might say something like made in the British colony of Hong Kong. And you go like, oh, when, you know, let me Google when was Hong Kong mm. one of the British colonies? Like it's a lot of working backwards and researching and Googling and like paying attention to those details or looking at um, the fabric, if it says, you know, 100% Dacron, Dacron was, you know, a Dacron Shepherd. D Dacron Shepherd is a 1950s. It's a polyester that came out in the fifties. So when you see those words, you go, Oh, that was 1950s. Or, you know, you see polyester, it's probably going to be the seventies. So you, you have to know a lot about fashion to make this work. You have to know a lot about fashion to make it work and to be an ethical seller. Mm. You can, you know, go open up a booth and sell t-shirts at a, you know, street fair for sure. And no one's going to be like, Oh, when's the era of this? So, okay. One of, let's take my example as, as a project for fun. I've had this project that keeps getting backburnered because I have actual art stuff to do, but I'll be at these estate sales with you or thrift stores. And sometimes I'll grab stuff. And I feel like I'm kind of more curating uh, a look, a collection, you know, fun oddities. I've got a bunch of weird Western belt buckles or punk punk rocks kind of belts. And it's more of like a just like a look and a feel rather than me knowing specifically what era these things were made in or. Would that work if I put up an Etsy shop that was just like, here's some cool, weird stuff. Yeah, I mean, you could, but part of listing on Etsy is you have to choose an era. Mm. 
Mm. There's, you know, you can choose any era, but it's going to be like 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000, 2000 to 2019, because the industry standard for vintage is 20 years old. Okay. So anything made in, you know, the year 2000 would be considered vintage at this point. So you're going to have to know some basics. That's nuts, though. Let's just pause on that for a second. <laughs> 2000. Yeah, I mean, it'll keep... It'll keep creeping up on us in 20 years. You know, vintage keeps getting newer. We keep getting older. But um, so like as much as people want to get around it, you do have to you do have to know for certain platforms. If you want to, you know, pop it onto Facebook Marketplace and just be like, cool belt buckle. I found it in a state sale. 20 bucks. You can surely do that. So that's, that takes us back to this marketplace idea where we didn't really get into why you're not on marketplace. Marketplace is, um, a place for like random people. I feel like you're not going to, it's your neighbors. It's that's, your neighbors. I mean, I it's people who are like, I'm going to just see on marketplace. If I can find a I don't know. I always search on marketplace for peacock chairs Okay. because I'm obsessed with peacock chairs and have always been. So I'm always like every like Morticia, Morticia Adams. Adams chair. Yeah. Um, so I probably once a week search on marketplace no, and just hope that someone doesn't know that they have a peacock chair and just is like, cool straw throne, <laughs> you know, like yeah. I, I search all the keywords. So that's like what I'm, I'm looking for someone who doesn't know what they have when I go to marketplace. And that's pretty tough. And so that kind of brings up the real crux of it and, and why and how you can mark up the way you do ethically, because it's a world market and somebody in the world wants that gunny sacks dress or that coat and has been looking for something like that or falls in love with it somewhere in the world and mm -hmm. they will pay a certain amount and that kind of creates these patterns that create a sort of fair market value for things that you can research and figure out so the markup isn't just out of nowhere and fleecing people no i mean and you know what goes into pricing a garment in my shop, let me just kind of go through it to clarify. So obviously the consideration of how much I paid for it, that's going to be not a very big part of how I'm price my things, unless it's, I paid a lot for it. Um, there's that there's who made it. Is it a desirable designer? Is it someone who's famous and well-known? Is it a rare thing is, you know, can I find another one of these anywhere online? If I can't, it's probably going to be a little more rare, more expensive. What is it made out of? Then you get into the time that it takes me to clean it and launder it. Does it need repairs? What are the costs of the repairs? How much time is it taking me to like find this thing? How did I source it? Did I have to drive a hundred miles to get it? How much gas? Like That's interesting. Like, is that fair to, to include that in your pricing? It's a consideration for sure. If it's something that's really desired and I have to drive an hour to get it, I think that that figures in, but the more obscure things that figure in too is like my own personal knowledge, my own skill set, the fact that I have the ability to find this thing and to know what it is mm -hmm. and to be able to like list it appropriately and to know what its value is, like that has a monetary value. 
Right. I'm not the person on Facebook Marketplace that's just like, I don't know, you want to buy this from me? I'm like telling you what it is, when it was made, what it's made out of, what the measurements are. Like I'm giving you a seamless experience as a buyer right. and you know what you're getting 100% and it's going to be good and it's clean and it's well made and it's been properly described to you. Right. I guess what I was thinking about as far as comparing like Marketplace, that is your neighbors, it's people within driving distance who can come and pick up something that you're trying to sell on Facebook Marketplace. It's like having a garage sale. Yeah. So that means that you're on there, you're pricing things accordingly as far as like, is anybody in my general area going to want this? And if so, like kind of what would they want to pay for it? Where if you are trying to sell to the world, like on Etsy or Facebook or whatever, eBay, then you're selling to a wider audience where there's somebody who knows the value of it and really wants it. And so that's a different pricing model. It just reminds me of like when I was trying to sell used books through Amazon for a while. It was a racket that didn't really ever really pan out for me, but it was fun to go to the library book sales and, and everybody's uh, digging through stuff. And a few of us would be clicking our beepers at these books. And the old people at these sales would get like mad about it. Like, oh, they're, they're just buying these books up to resell them. And it's messing with our pricing. It's the same kind of thing, like where they feel like they're losing out on something. But it's like those books are being sold at the library because there's like a bunch of them and there's a lot of supply and not much demand because it's just for the neighbors and the old people in the neighborhood who might want a book about chakras or something, right? But there's a bigger chance that nobody's gonna pick that up because it's just the neighbors where if you show that chakra book to the world, somebody desperately wants that book. Yeah. It's a different pricing structure. It is and I also think like the the education and knowledge level of the people on your Facebook marketplace versus you know the world you're going to get your Facebook marketplace people being like my grandma said this dress was 1920s and I want $500 for it and you're like that's a 1980s dress grandma like had dementia she doesn't <laughs> remember that she bought that in the 80s but like they don't you know, are you calling my grandma a liar? <laughs> yeah, like people have very like also sentimental connections and don't really know what they have and they might like inflate the value of it because of that on a Facebook marketplace. But that's not going to fly on like an Etsy, you know, where people are going to review you too. You know, they're going to like come back and say like, hey, this was a good experience and it was as described and the person knows what they're doing. They're going to like you know, give you your five stars or whatever, and you develop a reputation and as of being a good seller. And then your, your business continues to grow. So are you mostly on Etsy now, or is it how much, how much do you divide up your listings on platforms? I mean, right now I feel like I dedicate most of my time between Etsy and Instagram and I use Instagram as the vehicle to get people to go to Etsy. More like advertising. Yeah. Because, um, I feel like my Instagram has really allowed me to connect with people and to showcase my aesthetic and to gain followers who like what I'm doing. And so when they see that dress, they go to my Etsy shop and they buy it 
I mean, they may occasionally try to buy it directly on Instagram. That's fine too. The other um, platform that I used to use more frequently was Facebook, but we've talked about you between you and I just, it's a longer process. There are, uh, flakes and ghosts There's who say they of, want something and then disappear. It's like you, trying to have the, the party invites on. Remember when you'd have the, <laughs> the party invites on Facebook and yeah. people would say that they're showing up and then they wouldn't. Yeah. So yeah, you're like putting all your eggs into this basket that this group of people are going to want to buy your thing. And then it can be a week goes by and you've got 40 people who are like, yeah, I want it. And then who follows up and actually buys it? It just depends. So I've kind of pulled away from that a little bit. I still list things on Facebook occasionally. Um, usually uh, older things from like the 40s and 50s do well on Facebook. And then the things from like 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s on seem to do better on Etsy. So... And that's just from experimenting, right? It's from experimenting and just kind of pivoting and seeing what works best. And also I feel like Instagram is so visual. So you really want to show something that stands out in someone's feed, something that's like bold or has like really cool details so that you're they're, you know, scrolling through their feed and they see this garment that's like a wow factor garment. We're like, whoa, what is that? Mm. And you know, there are certain eras that aren't really like that. You're not going to get that same like visual pop from, you know, something maybe from the 1950s, unless they're looking for you that. You can hook people into following you. You can use that as like your little bait to be like, yeah. hey, follow me and see what else is on here. Yeah, exactly. And you get your, you know, and then you develop a relationship with these people who buy things. And then, you know, part of my business that's really started to grow is just sort of when I'm out and about, like buying for clients now where I'm like, I know that this person would love this thing. Mm. And then maybe offering it to them behind the scenes. Like, Hey, I basically bought this for you, which gives them a, like a jolt of a, wow. Yeah. That for me. Yeah. Or yeah, you know me so well or whatever, or tagging them in a post and, you know, being like, check this out because I really think this looks like you and people love to feel special and it's authentic too, because it's not like I'm just like saying that it made me think of them. Like I really bought it with them in yeah. mind. Okay. So we're talking about Instagram say somebody is, uh, say somebody is thinking about taking this on, they want to sell clothes and they want to get on Instagram or, or some of these platforms where Etsy, you, you have to list a price on Instagram. People are kind of making it up as they go along, as far as what business model they want to use to like, it's not made to sell on Instagram, mm -hmm. right? It's made for showing your pictures. So when people are selling on Instagram, uh, you might see that they are doing this thing where they tell you to DM them for the price. Should we get into that a little bit? I mean, we can get into it because I feel strongly about it. So one of the main principles of my business from the beginning has been price transparency. I feel like for me as a buyer, and of course, like I model my business after me as a buyer, because I feel like first and foremost, I've always been a buyer. I've always been a person who has supported other people's businesses and bought vintage before I even ventured into selling on my own. I was buying. Right. So for me as a buyer, I want to know all the information right up front. I want to like, if I'm scrolling through Instagram and I stop and I see something that's like, whoa, I love that. I want that. I want to see the price and I want to see the size. 
Those are right. like the two basics, you know. So you can actually make a decision. Yeah, like the basic, like the first thing that pulls me in is the photo, where you're like, "Wow, that looks great. I want that." Number two would probably be size. Would it fit me? Number three would be price. Like those are the three things: photo, price, and size. So the photos there. If you don't have the price and the size, I just feel like I'm not willing to take an extra step. I'm a busy person. I am, you know, scrolling through. I'm living my life. I'm, I'm doing things. I don't want to have to take an extra step to be like, um, excuse me, how much is this? Or what mm -hmm. size is this? Like, just tell me. I am the kind of person who like likes to be efficient. And so when I see someone say like DM for price or DM for details, I keep scrolling. Right, I, like what's the drawback? What's the big just, secret? Yeah. Just if you had the time to like post the photo and put all these hashtags, why can't you put the price and the and the size? It kind of leaves things open to maybe fudging things. Well, I've I've heard I've asked about this. I've done Instagram polls and asked people why they don't put the price, and. Um, I haven't gotten a ton of feedback. People are very tight-lipped about well, why. DM, you <laughs> with DM me with your questions. Yeah, um, people don't like talking about it, which also makes me like, why? You know, like, why don't you want to talk about it? But from what I've heard, the there there's a, a negative and a positive to this. Some people say that they don't put the price because it leaves room for negotiation. So like. They say, you know, you DM them and they say, well, what would you pay? Because, I mean, I think in vintage haggling is a very big thing. Just like when you go to a state. Flea markets. Flea markets. It's very much like rooted in that. And I don't like haggling. So that's probably part of the turnoff. Right. Um, but it is still alive and well in how people do business. So if they post a price then they feel like there's not any room for the person to be like, well, what if, a, you know, can I offer you this much or whatever? I don't really buy it. I feel like if you want to... It feels like you're you're hoping that somebody knows more about how it should be priced and what they're willing to pay than, than you are as the seller. It feels for me like a little predatory, you know? Like, well, I hope, I've, I'm guessing it's 50 bucks, but maybe somebody will give me 500. I don't know. Let's yeah, just see. let's just see what happens. Exactly. Where I feel like someone, you could be like, well, what's your best price? And the person could say like, I don't know, 300 and you were going to charge 98 or right. whatever. So you're kind of leaving that open. Um, the darker side of this has been that there have been proven situations where people will give different buyers different prices right because if somebody was like selling something like in the old days with the newspaper ad in the in the what do they call those not the one ads the classifieds the classifieds right like i got a lawnmower for sale you'd get a call hey is the lawnmower still available you could be like yeah you know how's a hundred bucks sound and they'd be like okay if the price for some reason wasn't wasn't in the the classified but with this social media, somebody could say, you know, how much for the lawnmower? And you can go onto their profile and be like, ooh, nice house, mm -hmm. nice car, nice jeans. Oh, you're a vintage collector. Oh, oh okay. you, you're buying a lot. It's yeah. 400 bucks. Exactly. And you're seeing that with DM for price. You're seeing people 
reported situations where one person is quoted one price and another person is quoted another price. And another layer to this too is, you know, if you say DM for price and someone says like, Hey, you know, I would like this for a hundred bucks. And then someone else DMs and says, Hey, I would like this for 200 or 300. Like you're, you, you're going to get as much as you can. Uh, so, so now people are you're like in an auction situation. And oh, and just for the sake of our listeners, a DM is a, a dungeon message. master, <laughs> a dungeon master price. <laughs> yes, of course. A direct message. So you're kind of, you know, behind the scenes, negotiating and I just don't feel comfortable with it. I, I feel like for me, I don't, and you know what it also feels like? It's like, if you have to ask, you can't afford it. Mm. It's got that air to it where it's just like, mm, man, they don't want to say the price on this thing. It's probably not going to be anything I want to like spend my money on. Mm. And I think that more people feel like that than anything that has been my main feedback from people. It's all the people who've responded to my polls about direct messaging for price have all been customers who say, if someone says DM for price, it means I can't afford it. Hmm. And that's sad. Yeah. Well, just to kind of wind things down, do you want to, what do you see for the future? Do you want to keep holding on to the sort of day job and, and working in vintage while you can, or do you want have other, do you want to aspire to more? Well, I mean, I think right now having a salary is good because this is a, like all arts, if you will, it's a job that is a little bit, um, what's the right word I'm looking for? It's just, it's not as reliable as I feel comfortable with. Right. It, it, you know, you always seem to have a supply, but it does depend on you going out and finding things that may or may not be out there. Yeah, that's that. There's that part of it that it's, you know, a non-renewable resource. There is a finite amount of certain types of vintage available, and you hope that those things will continue to be available. And luckily in our area, that's not a problem right now. I don't know how that will be in the future. So there's that piece of it. And there's also like, there are some weeks you sell a lot. And then there are some weeks that is more sparse and you can't like, it's all over the map. And I don't think that there's a way to be like every week I'm going to make this amount, you know, it just, it, it ebbs and flows. And I think that for now I am not comfortable giving up a sure thing, but eventually I think next steps, once the pandemic is over, I would love to have an assistant because I have a ton of inventory to list and, and I would love to even be able to bring someone with me to estate sales and have like a small team and like work with someone and maybe even teach them the skill set or have them work alongside of me. And, um, in that way, double my business, double my like potential for making money and, and whatnot and pay this person or internship, whatever it is. So would I feel you be, like, would you be worried that you'd be training a, a local competitor? Um, no, because I feel like every person has their own point of view, you know, I don't feel like that that person would specifically be my competition. Maybe they would, but like maybe more than likely that person is going to be, have things that they're passionate about doing or selling or offering. And it might not be what I am 
passionate about styling. Maybe they're the Tweety Bird t-shirt person. <laughs> I just picture more like that movie Single White Female where they just get a bead on your whole aesthetic and vibe. And they're like, I can do that. I can copy that. I will be you. Yeah. I mean, I think that there is always going to be that type of person, but it's it's not, they're not going to ever be able to and match. they'll stab you in the eye with a high heel shoe. That's going, you're taking a dark path right now. <laughs> I mean, I think that I'm trying to be really um, present and my next step would be to have someone to help me to like manage what I'm doing now more efficiently and grow my business in that way and uh, keep doing it and doing what I love and eventually doing more buying trips and traveling. That's what I was wondering. Like, do you think that it's, we've, we've done a little bit of traveling, but do yes. you think that there's regional dry spots where you're just not going to find sellable stuff or sure. does it matter? I mean, I think that there's, yeah, there's going to be areas that don't have a ton of vintage. There's going to be some that are like gold mines. Um, I think that like, I'm probably not going to be digging through a hoard, uh, like a hoarder barn looking for clothes. Like that's not what I do, but, but there are people that people, do that. Yeah. People do that and they make a ton of money doing that. Greasy and, old jeans. Yeah. Greasy old jeans or whole or sweaters with, that have been eaten by rats. Like people buy it and they spend a lot of money on it and not like that's their thing. Um, I think I just enjoy the hunt and I think you do too. Yeah. We both enjoy finding that hidden treasure. And so wherever, you know, we can find that, whether it's buying vintage clothing or weird, obscure stuff or garbage pail kid cards or whatever it is, like yeah. we're into it. That's one thing that seems like we also have noticed that um, somebody could take as advice is, is to know your local history because like you've noticed that there are like specific neighborhoods where the people were prospering and they're at a certain age where they bought that house in that neighborhood and they bought up all their clothes and they've kind of been sitting on all their possessions and now they're kind of old enough to be dying off. And that's where you kind of got a little gold mine neighborhood of estate sales. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the time capsule estate sales, meaning like these people have, you know, bought this house in the like the forties and lived there their whole life. That's where you're going to find the good stuff. You're not going to find like a vintage treasure trove in a McMansion. Right. So if you live in an area, I don't know, I'm picturing like areas of Arizona, you know, kind of your newer States basically where there's just not as much history and people have settled more recently. It's harder to or what about areas where the weather is just really bad? Are you going to, if everybody needs, needs to wear these Arctic parkas and they know they're going to get salty slush on their pants, can you buy amazing clothes in those areas? I mean, I don't know. I've never even thought about like, I don't know, doing a vintage trip to Alaska. Like I just don't. I was picturing more like the <laughs> Rust Belt, you know, like if you lived in Michigan or or Utah or, you know, areas where it's snowy and maybe people aren't as interested in fashion and there wasn't like, you know, a, I picture like areas like Connecticut where everybody, you know, was commuting to New York City in the 60s and then going back home to Connecticut. So that would be some nice time capsule history yes. to it. 
where there's other areas of the U.S. where I don't know if there's that, that history that's right for, at least not for estate sales. I don't know if I mean, what I think we're kind of going stores. full circle to what I was talking about where like you need, you do need to, to be hungry for learning to do this work. And yeah, absolutely. If you're um, selling what I'm selling, you're not going to be like, yeah, I'm going to do a destination trip to the Rust Belt to look for, you know, vintage 1960s psychedelic dresses. You're not probably going to do that. Now, if you're a person um, like some other people that I know and follow who do these like work, vintage workwear and the old jeans and the rusty old, you know, boiler suits and stuff. Yeah, they're absolutely doing trips out to barns in the Midwest and looking mm. for those things. Right. They, they're doing those trips and they're seeking those garments. Um, am I? No, but that's part of the, the education where you're like, I'm going to go where I know that people were wearing these things at that time and I'm going to look for it. I guess the, the best thing you can do is like, be interested. Right. If you're really wanting to sell vintage clothing, don't just do it. Cause you like look around and be like, Oh my God, everybody's doing this. And they're making so much money. Like do it because you love it and you're really interested in it. Exactly. But, you know, I do just want to say that, like, the reason that I wanted to, you know, interview you about this and, and it's such a great theme for living full atoms is because I've seen how well you can do with this. Like, I bust my ass on, like, T-shirt design where I'll spend days working on a T-shirt design and maybe somebody will buy it and maybe it'll be a hit, but probably it'll never sell. And then... When they do sell, it's like, yay, I got $4. Where you grab something, and, and yes, it takes work and searching and, and knowledge, but you grab something and you sell it, and it's gone the next day, and you made $50, $100, $200. $800. <laughs> and I can't, I can't compete with that with, with, like, with like my T-shirt designs and stuff. So it is something that is, is worth, oh, that's what my point is, it is something worth checking out and it is great that you can be in your own little neighborhood and region and you're if we tell people about this they're not going to be in competition with you no no and i think if it's something that you're like already interested in and i feel like you're looking you know i i think first and foremost i always loved fashion from the beginning so that love and appreciation and interest has always been there and now I'm lucky enough to be able to make money doing it which is like the dream really I mean I feel very fortunate I feel like I have learned a lot and have earned it but I feel very fortunate that now I'm actually doing you know doing something I love it's really what I love wake up in the morning every day excited to do and if you're a person who is interested in fashion whether it's t-shirts or belt buckles or 1940s or rusty jeans or whatever it is if you like clothes and you're you are looking for a way to pivot or you know earn extra money or make this your career it's absolutely possible and you can be full Adams doing it all right Amanda thank you for being the first guest of living full Adams thank you very much and uh, thanks for letting me talk about this and I feel like it's when I come alive and mm -hmm. talk about the things I love to do. All right. We'll talk to you guys next time. Mm -hmm.